want to open it up to Matthew chapter 19. Gospel of Matthew, the 19th chapter, that's where we'll find the text we want to look at together for a few moments this morning. Now, Daniel mentioned that today is the first day of the NFL season and I might have problems keeping people's attention. Uh, he mentioned uh, college football season, which of course has already been underway for a, a week and I might have trouble keeping attention if you're thinking about what your team did last night. But I have to tell you, if you, uh, like me, are a, a fan or a graduate to the University of Texas, I might have trouble maintaining my own attention on Sunday mornings rather than dwelling on what took place last night if uh, the first couple of weeks are any indication. It's, it's going to be a long season, I'm afraid. But nevertheless, we're glad that you're here this morning. I hope the time we spend here together will be, uh, will be uplifting, beneficial for us. And I want to begin by reading here in Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. Because the reading is so lengthy, I don't have it on the slides, but you can either follow along with me in your Bible or just listen to me as I read it. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter, enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. As I read this passage, many of you probably recognized it as the familiar story of the rich young ruler. That's what we usually call this fellow. And if you recognized it, then there's a danger that you're going to tune me out right away. For one thing, this is a familiar story. This is something that a lot of us have heard from the time that we were kids. And so there's this temptation, I think, to just say, rich young ruler, I know this old hat, shift our minds into neutral and just coast here through the rest of the sermon. Maybe you will start thinking about football or you'll start thinking about lunch or, or whatever it is because familiarity often breeds contempt. But beyond that, there's some specifics about this story. Maybe we look at this young man, this rich young ruler, and we think that we don't have anything in common with him. Nothing in his life applies to us. How can I take any personal lessons from this? For one thing, we never consider ourselves to be rich. 
I don't think I've ever met anyone who thought of themselves as rich because they could look around and see other people who were better off than they were. Now, I've met a good many people who I think are rich, but we don't often think of ourselves that way. And since this young man is described as rich, we automatically assume we don't have anything in common with him. For another thing, he's described as young. And we don't often think of ourselves as being young, no matter what actual age we are. When we're teenagers, we go to great lengths to try to make ourselves appear to be older. We're, we're mature. We're grown up now. I'm, I'm not a kid like those guys over there. Then we get a little bit older, and we start to complain immediately about how we're feeling old. Oh man, I'm, I'm 25. I'm in my mid-20s already. Or, I, I'm 30. My 20s are behind me. Next year, I'll turn 35, and my dad always told me that 35 was his most difficult birthday because he realized if he got his three score in 10 years, he was halfway there. Now, those of you who are 30, 40, maybe 50 years past 35 in this audience, you look back on that and you think that you've gotten old before your time. Where did it all go? So this man is described as young and rich. Most of us never think of ourselves as either one of those things. And then, too, we have very little authority. Children complain that their parents aren't fair. They don't listen to them. They're always running their lives. Husbands complain that their wives don't respect them. Wives complain that they don't have equal rights in the home. There's almost always someone who has more authority than you on the job. There's a boss above you somewhere along the line. So most of us feel like we have very little authority. Unless you're the high sheriff of Liberty County, maybe. That's, uh, we have one man of authority uh, with us here today. I don't know about his uh, wealth, and I won't comment on his age. He might not identify with him in other ways. The point of this is... We see this man, rich, young ruler. Luke's account is the one that describes him as a ruler. We are obviously not like this man at all. And so there's a danger just tuning me out. There's nothing for us here. But I want to encourage you not to do that. Let's walk through this story together this morning, and it just might be that we find we have a lot in common with this man, and that there are quite a few things we could learn from him. So let's walk through the text by asking a few questions of it. First of all, why did he come to Jesus? Why did he come? Now, this admittedly requires some speculation. It's not spelled out for us clearly, but based on what we know about him, based on what we know about Jesus, based on what we know about why other people explicitly came to Jesus, we can speculate here. And let's consider just three possible reasons why he might have come. First of all, Mark's parallel account tells us that Jesus was setting out on his journey. That is, Jesus was leaving the area. He was saying goodbye. At the beginning of that chapter, we're told that he was in the area beyond the Jordan. This is a place that he typically didn't spend any time. So he'd been there for days, preaching and teaching and healing and making friends and changing lives. And this rich young ruler might have been there just on the edge of the crowd day after day 
listening to Jesus, wanting to approach him, knowing that there, there was something about him. He, he speaks with authority. He's not like anyone else I've ever heard. But for whatever reason, he hasn't done it yet. And now Jesus is leaving. He's not going to have an opportunity to do it again. This may be his last chance. And so he just rushes up to him. Mark's account actually tells us that he ran up to him. Maybe, secondly, it's possible, he came because he saw in Jesus a quality of life that he didn't have, but one that he really wanted. In the immediately preceding context, we're told that mothers were bringing their children to Jesus, and Jesus welcomed them with open arms. And maybe he saw that, and he saw the love that Jesus demonstrated towards them, the compassion he felt in welcoming these children who normally were not welcomed by adults, especially men in authority like him in first century society. And maybe he saw that and he thought, this Jesus, he has something that I'd like to have, but I don't. What is it? And so he went to him. Or perhaps there's a, a third reason. Maybe he saw something in Jesus' lifestyle that sharply contrasted with his own. Remember, this man is a ruler. So wherever he went, he's followed by an entourage of people. We can think of him like aides, constantly asking for his input on things. Decisions are consistently thrust upon his shoulders. Day after day, he's supposed to render his judgment about things. His life is just full of constant pressure. And yet, here's Jesus, surrounded by crowds day after day. People are looking to him as one with authority. And yet, he always seems to be in complete mastery of the situation. He's got everything under control. This rich young ruler would like to know the secret to that. I'd like to be like that. Maybe he thinks. So we don't know for sure why he came, but I think we run through those reasons. Maybe you could come up with others, but what we see is well, the reasons he was attracted to Jesus are not any different from the reasons we're attracted to Jesus. We see something in him that we don't have and that we want to find out about. And so he ran to him. I find that really interesting. You know, Mark says he ran to him. I wonder how he mustered up the courage to do that. You know, here's a man of responsibility and authority, and he has to consciously or continually be conscious of his public image. And to just run like that in public, that's, that's undignified. In fact, from the world's perspective, Jesus should have been the one coming to him, right? Not the other way around. But here he is running to Jesus to ask him the most important question that a person can ask. What good thing must I do to have eternal life? That brings us to the second question we want to ask of the text. What did Jesus tell him to do? Jesus responded to him and said, are, are you familiar with the commandments? And he said, which ones? Jesus said, you know the ones. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. 
Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this young man responded, as any good and faithful Jew would, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? It's interesting. There's another record of this incident from an early document that's usually called the Gospel to the Hebrews. Now, let me be clear here at the outset. I'm not saying that this book is inspired. It never was accepted into the canon of Scripture. It doesn't have the same authority as Scripture does. But it was written very, very early, by the early 2nd century at the latest. And it circulated among Jewish Christians. So it, it may be that its account reflects something more about what transpired here. And I want to read to you from it now, because it elaborates on this story. The second of the rich men said to him, Master, what good thing can I do and live? He said unto him, O man, fulfill the law and the prophets. He answered, I have kept them. He said unto him, Go, sell all that you own, and distribute it unto the poor, and come, follow me. But the rich man began to scratch his head, and it pleased him not. Now listen to it, because here's what's important, where it deviates. The Lord said unto him, How can you say, I've kept the law and the prophets? For it is written in the law, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And lo, many of your brethren, sons of Abraham, are clad in filth, dying of hunger, and your house is full of many good things, and nothing at all goes out of it to them. Now, I don't know whether that exchange actually took place or not, but I bring it up because it points us to the key to this passage as it exists. The rich young ruler claimed to have kept the law. And you know, from a technical, strictly legal standpoint, he might have been right. But he'd neglected the greater purpose of the law, the spirit of the law. And according to that, his statement wasn't true because his whole attitude toward his fellow man was wrong. His basic attitude was selfish. That was his fundamental problem. And that's why Jesus challenged him to go and to sell everything that he had and to give it to the poor. See, this man was so chained, so weighted down by his material possessions that only the surgical excision of them would cause him to be saved. He had to get them out of his life. If a person looks at their possessions as existing for nothing but their own comfort, their own convenience, those things become a prison to them. But if a person looks at their possessions as an opportunity to, to do good, to serve others, well, then those things can be their glory and their crown. Do we possess our possessions? Or do our possessions possess us? I think what Jesus tells this man to do is instructive here. Notice this about the prescription he gives him. Jesus doesn't ask him to give to any particular pet project that he has. 
And I think maybe we could learn something here about how we approach giving, whether we're talking about personal giving or collective giving. We often think about giving in terms of we need funds for some specific thing to support some mission work, or we need it for disaster relief, or we need it for facilities to, to put a new roof on the building, or, or whatever it may be. I'm not diminishing any of those things. All of them might be needful. But you notice, Jesus doesn't give any of those sorts of reasons like that for his giving. He doesn't say give to a project. He says give before what you have comes to possess you. Give it away because you're in danger. This man was on a dangerous precipice in his life. His wealth was about to master him. And so Jesus said he needed to get rid of it before it ruined him. Now, Jesus could have asked him to give him money to finance his ministry. And you know, I just bet you that he would have been willing to do that. If Jesus had said he needed some financial support, I expect he would have said, Here, Jesus, have some money. You, your apostles, go around, travel in style, buy a, buy a private jet, stay in five-star hotels, whatever. Go and spread your message wherever you can. But Jesus didn't ask him for one single cent. Because that really wasn't what was at stake here. Don't you know that was strange for him? I expect this fellow was inundated with people coming up to him asking for handouts all day long or for some project that they had. Give me, give me, give me. And instead Jesus says, give it away. Get rid of it. Before it possesses and corrupts your life. The question that confronts all of us in light of that is, what is it in our lives that stands in the way of following Jesus? Maybe for us it's our possessions, just like it was for this young man. We're not rich. No, nobody's rich, remember? We're not rich, but maybe we're just consumed with keeping up with the Joneses. We're never satisfied with what we have. We always want more and more and more, and we're in this constant pursuit of material things, more and better and newer. Maybe it's not our possessions. Maybe it's our job. We're consumed with our career, with getting a, a promotion, with putting in as many hours as we can in the workplace. Labor isn't a bad thing. We talked about that last week, but... Labor isn't our first and highest duty. Perhaps families. Now, we need to take care of our families. We know that. That's a good biblical idea. But maybe we're so consumed with their comfort and their pleasure that we allow God to take a back seat. Husbands are to love their wives. Wives are to love their husbands. Children are to respect and obey their parents. And parents are to care for their children. Those things are all important. And yet, we belong to another family that's even more important. Family of God. You remember when Jesus' mother and his siblings came to get him and he looked around and he said, what are you talking about? This is my mother and my brothers. Those people who were there listening to him, his disciples. Perhaps we're just generally selfish. Whatever it is for us specifically, we just care about our own pursuits, our own wants, our own needs, our own desires above anything else. 
whatever it is for us individually, if there is anything at all, whether it's a vice or a bad habit or whether it's something that is good in and of itself, if there's anything that impedes our walk with Jesus, we need to get rid of it. Throw it away. Jettison it from our lives. That's the momentous decision that Jesus forced this young man to face. And so we come to the third and final question. How did he respond to that? What did this young man do? This is one of the most touching scenes in Scripture, I think. Here is this man who ran to Jesus and now he's kneeling there before him. Stares down at the dust. What would it be like to follow Jesus? To be free of, of all those doubts and fears that he had. To have those burdens of responsibility lifted from his shoulder. To go and follow this man who had that, that indescribable something that attracted him in the first place. But on the other hand, there was that banquet that was being thrown in his honor that night. There was that brand new wardrobe full of clothes that he just purchased. There was that beautiful young woman that his parents had arranged for him to marry. There was that brand new chariot he just ordered, fully equipped, all-wheel drive, Corinthian leather interior. What is he going to do? Luke's account puts it the most bluntly. He says, When he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. I can picture Jesus helping this young man to his feet from his kneeling position, looking into his eyes, and then seeing him turn and sadly walk away. And as he does that, as he turns his back on his Lord, Jesus says to his apostles, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, some commentators have had difficulty with that. They say that Jesus is referring to the, the so-called needle gate here, a, a gate in the city of Jerusalem that was really hard for a camel to pass through because it was low. If it was loaded down, it had to get down really low to pass through there. Jesus uses the common word for a needle. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. He might be making a play on words here because they know about the gate and an actual needle and how difficult it is to put a string through the eye of a needle, but... But he's being literal. And it's, it's hyperbole, of course. But the point is that this is an obvious impossibility. And so the apostles respond with an obvious question. Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. You see what he's saying here? It is impossible for us to save ourselves. 
By ourselves, we can't save ourselves, we can't save one another, and it doesn't matter what we are by this world's standards. It doesn't matter how wealthy, how powerful, how much authority that we have, we are absolutely incapable of doing it. We might be mighty by the world's standards, but we're still incapable of salvation. But what's impossible for us is possible for God. With God, all things are possible. God can save us. God will save us if we'll yield ourselves up fully, completely, totally in submission to Him. And yet, how many of us are still trusting in ourselves rather than trusting in Him. We're relying on our own wit and wisdom rather than relying on God. Or we're relying on our own goodness to be saved. Of course I'm going to be saved. I've been good. I've kept the commandments. You see, we have a lot in common with this rich young ruler because his failing fundamentally is our failing too. Our tendency to trust in ourselves rather than to trust in God. But only with God is it possible. And this morning, He's calling you, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're young or you're old, and He's asking you to follow Him. Did you follow Jesus this morning? Without hesitation, without reservation, without holding anything back, lacking nothing. If you've never come to Him, I want to urge you to do it this morning. Put your faith, your trust in Him. Turn to God in repentance. Confess that Jesus is Lord and be buried with Him in baptism. Have your sins washed away. Be added to His people, the church. Begin that life of walking after Him, following Him. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but somewhere you've strayed from that path. You've allowed the things of this world, you've allowed your own selfishness, your own self, to come to first place instead of God. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way this morning, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.